You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. This is Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. For over 45 years, we have specialized exclusively in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. From the very beginning, we have been family-owned and family-run. Our tents have become the go-to choice for discerning outdoor adventurers all over the world, and especially for those who travel in challenging terrain and conditions and who demand utter reliability from their equipment. Conceived and developed in northern Sweden, our tents are made in Europe, built to last, and offer the ideal balance of high strength, low weight, ease of use, and remarkable comfort. This is Diggle McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AHA. You know, with all the hype and crowds around the Kumbu and the Baltoro, it's amazing there are still peaks in the world like Koyozom. This mountain in northern Pakistan is nearly 7,000 meters tall, and its stunning north face looks like a massive medieval fortress. As far as we can tell, no one has climbed or even attempted Koyozom for more than 40 years. But our guest, Tom Livingstone, and four British friends set out this fall to change that. Dividing into two teams, they attempted two lines on Koyozom in September. Tom and his climbing partner, Ali Swinton, succeeded on a very difficult route they called the Great Game. The climbing looks amazing. But after descending most of the mountain on the way back to base camp, they had a serious accident, which ended with a helicopter rescue. Tom was our guest in episode 11 of The Cutting Edge, along with Lucas Straja, talking about their climb of Latak 1. Listeners won't be surprised to hear he's still eloquent, thoughtful, and occasionally outspoken. The AHA's Chris Kalman caught up with Tom as he was recovering from this recent expedition, clipping bolts in Austria. Chris will take it from here. It's a great pleasure to be uh, talking with the British climber Tom Livingstone. Tom is uh, well known for his impressive climbs all over the world, including the PLA Door winning climb of Latok 1 last year. Today we're going to be discussing his recent trip to the Hindu Raj, which is a remote range in Pakistan, where he and his partner Ali Swinton successfully climbed the previously unclimbed west face of Koyozam, which at 6,877 meters is the highest peak in the range. Uh, so Welcome, Tom, and thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thanks for having me. So um, for starters, can you just give a little geographic information here? Where exactly is the Hindu Raj range and what's it like getting in there? The Hindu Raj is right in the north of Pakistan. And essentially, it's a continuation of the Karakoram range, as far as I know. And so uh, where the Karakoram fades out a little bit to the west, uh, you get the Hindu Kush, which is quite well known and quite popular. And then it becomes the Hindu Raj, the next kind of range over. And it's really sandwiched in between uh, Afghanistan, Tajikistan and China. Uh, so it's uh, right in the far north. Um, and actually, it's pretty simple to get to. It's three days drive from uh, Islamabad, the capital city, and then you can just walk for however long it takes to get to base camp. Um, but it's really remained off uh, everyone's radars or or it's been closed 
for um, quite a long time. And why has it been closed? Is it military reasons or? I think it's been um, predominantly because of the conflicts between Pakistan and Afghanistan and the fact that the Taliban occupied the nearby Swat Valley uh, until only eight years ago. And so um, I think it's a mixture of um, there's been no permits issued for a long time and um, there's been quite a lot of conflict and a lot of movement uh, of people in that region. And how long is a long time? Are we talking 15 years, 30 years? I think more like 40 years. Uh, It seems like there were Brits um, who went to this particular mountain and perhaps the most recent people to go to this range, and they were in 1974. Um, Since then... I think there's been one French team who kind of uh, snuck in there before us and got to this area um, in the spring of 2019, but um, they didn't sort of fully quest into the middle of the range. And so I guess we might be the first team in a while, but then uh, I've got no real idea. I didn't spend too long researching it. I was sent a photo of the mountain and the area by Will Sim, who'd done all the research for this, and he kind of invited uh, me and um, my mates to go with him. So, yeah, Will had um, been speaking with a lot of climbers like Marco Prezel and Bruce Norman, for example, and everyone had said, oh, yeah, I've heard about this mountain and Koyozom, and I've kind of heard about the Hindu Raj. But um, for one thing or another, either permits have been hard to get or uh, it seemed like a bad idea to be so close to the borders uh, of these countries or the Taliban. And so nobody's actually gone there until relatively recently. So do you think your guys' expedition was the first one to climb uh, in that part of the range? Well, Koyazom has been climbed twice, to my knowledge, uh, once in 1968 and once in 1974, um, so people have been questing around this range for quite a long time. Sure. And what about like the specific approach you took or or that being on that side of the mountain? You guys climbed the west face. Had that been attempted before or had, to your knowledge, any of the expeditions approached from like the same side? Yeah, sorry. It seems like when the mountain was climbed um, a long time ago, they always went um, one valley over and... Uh, then climb the mountain from the east side, which is a lot a lot easier um, by the looks of things. And so I don't know why p- nobody's attempted this particular uh, side. Perhaps everyone got to the mountain and, and back then it, they probably had to quest quite a long way. They probably had to drive quite a long way. And then um, they just looked at the north face and thought, mm, maybe not, let's go to the easier east side. And the um, Range itself has got loads and loads of unexplored valleys by the sounds of things. Um, what I can also say is that from the bivvies on on Koyozom, they were amazing looking peaks right in the distance. Um, and I guess most of these would be in Afghanistan, but they looked really, really impressive. And I still haven't got around to looking on Google Earth and seeing exactly what they are. I know you said that this was kind of Will's idea and he he put the trip together. You guys went down there with Will Sim, John Crook, Dean Hawthorne, and you and your partner, um, Ali Swinson. 
like how did the whole thing come together um was there ever like a backup plan on maybe somewhere else to go if you couldn't get permits or was it sort of all in from the very start uh no it was um well organized by will but there's so many hurdles and uh like stuff that you um get shut down on or um stuff like that that happens with these expeditions so for example until uh or about one or two months before we were planning to go we still hadn't got the permit for this mountain and we couldn't go to this uh range as a whole so um our agent was busy trying he actually wrote us an email saying i've asked the president or prime minister of pakistan for a permit which i thought was a good effort i don't know if Imran Khan would uh, care much about us going there but you know he the agent was really trying and he was getting shut down and so we were desperately looking around for plan b's and and things like that uh, for other areas in um, Pakistan and eventually Will uh, managed to get us the permit or the, the agent got us the permit uh, then Ali and uh will got their visas for pakistan um as they were boarding the plane basically uh to fly to pakistan so that was a, a bit of an adventure um even just getting everyone together uh, as a team of five and uh, then when we were acclimatizing and checking out the mountain everyone was fairly psyched to um get involved with this uh right hand line the kind of northwest face line and um when you're acclimatizing though anything can can happen between like the three or four weeks from arriving in base camp and checking out the mountain for the first time and then actually climbing it like unfortunately will got some sort of chest infection uh or something like that so he he was out for a few days and uh just got really ill for a couple of days i think it turns out he now has e coli which is um very very serious. We're very, very sad for him. And then um, when it actually comes down to it, it basically is like, well, who's site for which line and who's actually site to climb something. So Will, Ujjin and John Crook were site for the left-hand line because it looked uh, good quality. It also looked like it would give them more time to acclimatize. It also looked a bit easier. And then Ali and I kind of said, well, yeah, we were site for this this right hand line on Koyazom. Um, so once you had base camp set up, how did you guys go about acclimatizing? Were you climbing nearby summits or were you kind of getting on the on the wall itself? What what did you guys do to acclimatize? Yeah, acclimatization was actually a real pain because ideally you want to sleep about a thousand meters lower than the summit. Um and there were no peaks that met this criteria in in the nearby area um perhaps in hindsight i would have gone for one extra week to to pakistan and in that earlier week i would have gone to a trekking peak nearby and if this was practical and then just trek your way up to like six thousand meters um so that you could acclimatize really well but instead what we did was um basically walk as high as we could and sleep just below the Bergschrund of the um, uh, face. And that was 5,000 meters. So we spent quite a few nights there, three nights there maybe. Um, but then we wanted to get a bit higher. And so uh, me, Ali Swinton and John Crook 
um, cragged the start basically, which was a tech, uh, a technique that I kind of learned on the moonflower buttress on Mount Hunter in Alaska, where you just climb the first few pitches. Um, and then you wrap down, it's like a fun day's cragging, uh, and you can have the start totally wired and you know, like where to go and, you know, put the red cam on your right, right side and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and so we went up the ice field that you can see at the start of the uh, northwest face and then had a bad night's sleep on a little snow bivy uh, snow ledge with a snow hammock uh, to get high enough and that was also good because you could get right um, underneath the headwall and see just how steep and intimidating it looked you could um, put some um, v-threads in the ice field on the way down so that you could just clip those on the way back up. And it was good to know just what the temperatures were like, um, overnight. So I took like four layers or something. Um, and in the end I took a quite a beefy mid layer because it was extra cold at night. Um, so it was good information gathering. It was a bit of a pain because it would have been better just to have walked up, um, to like 6,000 meters and spent a few nights there. But it was, um, you know, all part of these like tactics and ideas that you kind of gain. And it just helped to make the final, when we actually went climbing, it just helped to make everything a bit easier. Right. I guess for those of you listening, the the proper onsite still awaits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you call that a pink point if the V-threads were already? Oh, yeah, I guess technically. <laughs> like a dab. <laughs> So important asterisk for this this impressive climb. There was a dab. There are many <laughs> asterisks on this climb. Yeah, yeah. Also used helicopters. Yeah, We're, we'll definitely get into that. Um, so, but before we we go down that path, um, I'd love to just kind of hear how the climb itself went. I mean, you guys were on it for like five days, right? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm very biased because uh, it. Ali and I climbed it. Um, but I honestly think I tried to objectively think, and I thought this was one of the best and more sustained routes that I've been on, which, um, was quite cool. Um, once we got, uh, to the ice field and to the top of that, um, we spent a day following, um, mixed like chimneys and gullies little little faults um climbing really good quality granite and hauling bags because it was quite steep and we had heavy bags because of all the food and uh, quite a big rack and stuff sure and then sure. got this amazing little snow ridge bivy which is like totally himalayan it looks really cool it's pitching the hmm. tent on a knife edge ridge um wow. and it feels like the real deal um and then staring up at this head wall. And I think on day three, that's when we started climbing up the, the main head wall, um, climbing these glued in, like iced in spikes and flakes of rock. So it was like climbing with your hands, but then your crampons could go on little tiny edges. And there wasn't much gear actually, but it was really, really good fun. It was like going to a climbing mm -hmm. wall, a gym. And uh, just like, oh, really? It's like <laughs> just like gym climbing. climbing. Yeah, it's basically gym climbing, except with a massive bag and a big headache. Um, and then, yeah, just the the headwall uh, itself um, looks really like some of the 
really good sea cliff climbing we've got in the UK. Um, there's a particularly mm. cool place called Gogarth, which is in no- North Wales. Um, it's above the sea, so it's really atmospheric, and it tends to be really steep, um, but with quite good gear mm. and quite positive holds. So you get full exposure, and basically the headwall felt a lot like um, climbing at Gogarth. Um, we brought some rock shoes, um, so I was really, really psyched to pull on these rock shoes, and then as the sun came round in the afternoon, um, basically climb uh, up this really, really uh, exposed position. When I chucked a rock over my shoulder, it would just fall for like free fall for a few hundred meters and then like smash down the wall, which was really, wow. really cool. Um, so it was in the sunshine. It was like 6,200 meters. Um, when I got really pumped and had a um, – I couldn't really breathe because of the altitude. you just sit on a good cam and then um, uh-huh. like carry on questing up. And you could kind of like bridge through the steepness, um, stem through the steepness. So it was great fun, really, really cool. Um, and Ali did a top job of like – I was looking up at the headwall as we were climbing up towards it and thinking, well, this is probably not going to go because mm. it looked like it, there was no realistic way that we could go unless we spent like a whole day of aiding and I haven't done much aid climbing. So <laughs> um, Ali was like good. He was, he was pretty encouraging. I remember him saying, well, I said, have you got any advice for me as I, as I aid up this pitch? <laughs> um, and he was like, well, yeah, don't, don't lean out on any of the pieces stay underneath them so um i got some good aid climbing advice from ali and yeah so ali was like really really positive and like i i don't know he like full credit to him basically for uh for saying like yeah let's just keep going keep going and he got the the bad deal because he seconded everything um he didn't have rock shoes we just had rock shoes for me uh so he had gotcha. his boots plus crampons and then he had my boots plus crampons swinging off the back of his harness. So he had extra, oh, no. <laughs> extra weight training. So, okay, I want to talk about the rock shoes a little bit. Like, how did you guys make that decision? Was it obvious from from kind of base camp that you were really going to need them up there? The headwall looks quite dry and rocky. So it looks like you would uh, be rock climbing, in which case... Um, Rock climbing, but with axes and crampons, totally sucks. So you might as well make things as easy and as quick as you can. Uh, in which right. case, um, since it's getting sun in the afternoon, evening, uh, it's probably warm enough for your hands and therefore warm enough for rock shoes. As it turned out, it was freeze well, fresh. I would say it was fresh, um, uh-huh. but just about <laughs> okay. <laughs> What kind of temperatures are we talking about here? Well, yeah, everyone asks this, and I've got no idea. Like, I wonder who actually carries one of those little thermometers on the back of their rucksack <laughs> so they could say, like, what, sure. minus 10? When I um, finished the pitch, I just had my rock shoes on, so I immediately put on my really big synthetic mitts on my hands, and I immediately put on my socks that I'd stuffed down my top, and I was still really, really cold, um, like – 20 minutes or half an hour later when Ali would second the pitch. So it was quite fresh and there was like a cold wind blowing. And when we were sleeping or when we were seconding, for example, you'd be wearing your synthetic trousers 
your pants and you'd also be uh, wearing a down jacket most of the time. So it was like cold temperatures, I would say. Um, the bivvies were mostly quite cold as well. You said you were kind of sitting on cams to rest and et cetera, et cetera. But is this, what kind of terrain would you say you were climbing on? Is that like 510 terrain, 512, 11, uh, you know? Yeah, anyone that wants to um, on-site this, just pause it for a second. But I would say um, in English currency, in British currency, it's kind of E4, 6A, um which is what the, what's that like french 7a which is 511 something yeah it's like 11d well 11 so pretty hard well give it a sandbag grade of 11d okay awesome uh that must have been pretty pretty mind-blowing to be climbing that that steep and difficult of terrain just way off the deck like yeah it did feel pretty wild i mean i i didn't free it so um just the position itself felt really cool and felt really um spectacular it's a bit like standing at the bottom of the drew in chamonix and then questing up that um only mm. winter um so yeah it felt really cool and i guess you guys were you worried about any sort of overhead hazard climbing climbing in the sunlight you know in the afternoons or was it just so cold that everything nothing was melting or anything like that yeah it was so cold that nothing was melting and um there was no real overhead hazard on this line which is what drew us to it the main north face of koyozom is just a mess of like massive seracs um right at the top so you wouldn't want to climb anything else except this like left hand line that will john and ushchen tried or this right hand line the thing that ali and i did Okay, at the time that you hit the head wall, uh, what day on the route was that? I think we hit the head wall, well, at the start of day two, and then we exited um, like lunchtime day four. Yeah. Okay, so you spent quite a bit of time on the head wall. Um, what was going on with the other team at this time? Were they climbing on the during the same window? Yeah, we were all climbing. Um, those guys um, were putting in a good effort. The ridge that makes up the left-hand line, it in true Himalayan style, was really complex and involved a lot of up and down and sideways and stuff. Uh, and I think on their fourth day, they got quite high, but not not as high as they were expecting. Um, we had this grand idea that, well, I had this grand idea that we'd all meet all five of us at the summit and we'd all five high five, um, which would have been super cool, um, to have come up different ways and then met like that. But, um, unfortunately I think, uh, Ushin and Will were feeling pretty goosed from the altitude and they hadn't been able to acclimatize or fully recover from their things. Um, so they came down. They also had a sat phone, which was totally useless. It wasn't receiving messages. So the last thing, so it was only receiving occasional messages. And the last thing it had was that the bad weather, some bad weather was coming in on Saturday. So they kind of understandably as well bailed. Uh, I think it was on the Friday or something expecting the bad weather to come in. But 
luckily on this trip, this is definitely the best weather I've ever had on an expedition. Uh, and luckily that weather just never arrived. Gotcha. Is that pretty typical of that range to your knowledge that the weather tends to be a little bit better? I don't know. Um, we went in September because that's supposed to be better, sort of cooler for 6,000, 7,000 meter objectives in Pakistan. But uh, yeah, since nobody else seems to have been here for a while, I don't know. But yeah, the, the locals were looking pretty suntan. So yeah, I, I can imagine it's just amazing weather all the time. <laughs> that's basically <laughs> what we had. Um, after the headwall, were you pretty close to the summit? Were, were there any last like cruxes or difficult sections getting up to there? Yeah, well, after the headwall, it's a total uh, slog to the summit, unfortunately. Um, the headwall is still a long way from the actual summit, and it took us a full uh, day or day and a half to get from the top of the headwall. We traversed like a. Um, underneath a ridge for a long time just following snow slopes and then we kind of crashed and had a bivy and then um it took us yeah six hours or something from there um to go up to the summit um there's actually a false summit that you can see in all the photos looking at the north face um luckily we'd seen the true summit in another photo further back so we weren't too disappointed but it was still a bit shit when the um you kind of come around the corner and see the false summit and then realize you've got to go a lot further to go to the true summit checking into your altitude pain cave and putting your head down and um getting your lungs completely smashed uh, just breathing as much as you can basically right so what time was it when you guys got to the got to the summit i think it was one o'clock and it was on Saturday the 28th, maybe, something like that. And were you guys, did you spend some time up there hanging out and enjoying the views or were you pretty much like, cool, we made it, time to get out of here? No, we were really psyched actually. And it was Ali's first trip to the Himalayas, so that was awesome. Uh, and it was the highest he'd ever been, so that was really cool as well. And the views wow. were amazing. Yeah, you could see... From Pakistan, you could see Afghanistan, the Wakhan Corridor. You could then see the plains of Tajikistan, and you could look away over to China. It just looked amazing, like really barren, desert-like valleys, and then wow. all these white-capped peaks that we'd been looking at for the um, past few days, just stretching off into the distance. It just felt like we were on the moon or something. It was really cool. You know, you kind of, I mean, the way you described it, it sounds like pretty smooth sailing. Were there any times during the climb when you were either scared or at least uncertain that you might not make it? Or were you guys just sort of cruising? No, no. I mean, I've got a very um, selective memory or poor memory, it seems. So I tend to only just remember the really good times now after trips. But I think there were some pitches that were really mentally involved um that's british speak i'll let you interpret that and there's definitely some a lot of uncertainty about whether we were going to be able to get up the route or get up some pitches as well um there were some really tricky like loose pitches um so you're putting in lots of gear that you didn't really know how good it was but obviously you know you put lots and lots in um 
and we were completely or well, we weren't completely knackered but we were pretty tired by the by the end of it um we had really heavy bags predominantly because of carrying such a big rack so once we got off the headwall on day four um we thought we'd do the right thing and carry everything off and so we had really really heavy bags um Mm -hmm. when we were just like walking up the final snow slopes for a day like day four afternoon and day five morning um, walk me through the descent a little bit after you guys are up there and enjoying the summit views. Uh, what was your path off of the mountain and how did that go? We went down the east face, which I think is the way that other teams, the two other teams had come up. That was really nice, uh, kind of obvious. The weather was still good. Um, and we did maybe like five or six V-thread rappels on ice and then down climbed and eventually lost about a 1,000 meters in altitude to land back on the Petrus Glacier, which is the glacier on the other side of the uh, uh, the next valley over, basically. And from walking down that big flat glacier, uh, it would take us to base camp again. Gotcha. And so... At some point, uh, Allie ended up falling into a crevasse. Uh, This is something that uh, I've heard quite a bit about. So when did that happen? And looking back, I mean, in retrospect, would you have done anything differently? And how did the whole ensuing rescue work out? On, I think it was morning of day six, we were down on this big flat glacier, the Petrus Glacier, and we knew we had to just walk down, lose 2,000 meters in altitude, and maybe walk like 15K or something like that and be back in base camp. So we were really psyched to be hopefully back that evening. And it starts off as a massive flat snow glacier. There's no crevasses or anything like that. Uh, So nonetheless, we roped up and started walking in the morning the snow was a bit soft um it hadn't really frozen overnight um we thought about putting helmets on but yeah you're on this big flat glacier and we're used to climbing the alps so perhaps we are lazy or whatever um and nobody does it in the alps sort of thing and so we started walking down and then you start to hit uh crevasses and so we started weaving in and out of these these things um, quite big. And then basically Ali fell in the crevasse uh, behind me and I managed to stop him with the rope and then haul him out. Um, and I don't know why, but for some reason I thought he would be uh, fine when he came out. But uh, actually I was quite shocked. I maybe was as shocked as he was when he kind of popped out again and he was bleeding quite a bit from his head and he had like blood all over his face and stuff. And it turned out he'd hit his leg and his elbow on the way down. Uh, his leg was, um, meant he couldn't really walk super easily and his head, I wasn't sure how bad it was, but I thought head injuries aren't very good. And, um, I kind of had a bit of a look and poked around a little bit, uh, and could see like, big cuts or big big stuff like that uh so it looked kind of serious i realized that um 
we were in Pakistan in a remote area. The helicopters can't be relied upon, although they're, they're obviously a great um, thing to call on. But, you know, if this is not the French Alps, basically, where they can whisk you off in 10 minutes. And I was kind of aware that we were in this location and I, w- I was aware that we might not get rescued that day and that it would set off a huge chain of events. And so I decided, yeah, it would be good to press the inReach mini SOS button. Um, after checking Ali out for a bit, like, uh, I think he was in shock maybe a little bit, although he was, yeah, like really strong throughout. And so I made sure like he was warm and tried to talk to him all the time and stuff like that and give him a bit of food and water. It seemed like we'd be rescued that day. So I guess this is day six or seven. Um, and it turned out there was a bit of miscommunication between people involved. And it seems like somehow the helicopter went to our base camp, which was 3,500 meters, not where we were, which was 5,900 meters or something like that on the first day. Uh, so they told us sit tight and um i think by this time i was probably uh not looking after ali very well or something and he was um sort of his condition seemed to be deteriorating and it felt quite serious uh it was getting cold because it was just about to be uh dark and yeah so i properly like put the tent up and we got in our double sleeping bag and tried to warm Ali up and talk to him as much as I can. And, you know, just do all the stuff that uh, you're supposed to do or I thought was, was useful. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad he made it through the night. And um, then we eventually got rescued. We thought we were going to get rescued at, like, first light the next day. But, actually, I think it was closer to one or two in the afternoon and yeah, it was a good job by the Pakistani helicopters to pick us up. Man, pretty pretty wild end to the trip. Um, about how far do you think he fell? And and another question would be, if you guys weren't roped up, do you think? Uh, I mean, would he have been able to be rescued at all? I think he fell about fifteen or twenty meters, just because. Um, uh, I'd just gone quite slowly when I was leading that section, and so there was a bit of slack in in the system. Um, and I think if he'd, f- I don't know too much about what the crevasse was like. Uh, Ali said something like it was really grim. He couldn't like touch the walls, and there were loads and loads of hanging like stalactites, stalactites of ice. So like big daggers of ice. So it sounded really, really grim uh, and scary in there. And I think if he had fallen in without the rope, he'd be strawberry jam. Yeah. Uh, so what what were the extent of his injuries, you know, after he got to the hospital and they sort of took a look at him? Uh, thankfully, his leg was okay. I thought um, I sort of sliced open his trousers because I was um, really worried that there was going to be some, like, bone sticking out because he'd hit it on the way down by the sounds of things. Um, but actually, it was right. just really badly bruised. Um, so I was a bit worried about a hematoma in his thigh. But that seemed to be okay. Mm. That The elbow um, seemed to be really badly bruised as well. Um, and the head wound, 
Um, by the sounds of things, we were very, very lucky because there were two long, like three inches, four inches sort of thing cuts in his head. And they were wow. quite deep, but it sounds like they were just thankfully um, not too deep to break the skull or anything like that. I mean, if it had been like an inch deeper or even a centimeter deeper, it would have been really serious and like a skull fracture or something. So a lot, a lot worse. So we were very lucky. And so Ali had some stitches and stuff, which was quite funny in, in like a remote, well, it's not super remote, but a hospital in Gilgit in Pakistan, but um, there were loads and loads of people like popping in and there was a guy holding his phone torch. He was the light man. And then uh, they were just all going for it with like stabbing in needles. And it was exactly what you imagine a Pakistani hospital to be like. Uh huh. Looking back in retrospect, is there anything that um, they looking back as a big takeaway for, you know, things that you would do differently? Or do you feel like really you guys basically did everything right? Well, main thing is that in time we will process the events properly and learn from them. But for now, I think it's important to remember glaciers and crevasses are horrible, gnarly things. And what we should have done, I guess, really would be to walk uh, like 500 meters out and then 500 meters along and then 500 meters back in from our kind of intended path. Um, sure. We kind of got, we were starting to weave in, in crevasses. So it didn't, you wouldn't naturally have taken that path. But, you know, if in hindsight, I would have somehow gone all the way around this really gnarly section. Um, yeah, I guess basically be very careful and be very aware um and to be aware of what's involved with a rescue like you might not get rescued that's a possibility um and just how lucky we were i guess and glad everything worked out fine that's the main thing is that we uh came back okay it really puts things in perspective and makes you realize yeah the route was fun and stuff but the most important thing is coming back okay i think this is an interesting moment to transition to talking about awards so this this is already being touted as a pretty exceptional climb and you know i wouldn't be at all surprised to see it come up in talks of the pla door in 2020 um i know that after you got the award in last year for uh your climb on lay talk one uh you had some pretty interesting things to say about the pla door and I'd love to hear you just kind of expand on that a little bit. Tell me a little about, you know, what what would it feel like to you if this climb were nominated or, you know, what is what does it mean to you if you uh, successfully complete a climb but have to get rescued or even, let's say, uh, you know, in a tragic scenario, if a climb was successfully completed but then, you know, one or more of the team members perished. Um, do you think that it's good to be awarding climbs like that? What's, what's your feeling? Try to unwrap all of that. <laughs> Sorry, really long question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I don't know 
what to make of the Pile d'Or now because it sounds like it's changed in format slightly, which is good. I was away in Pakistan um, this September when the ceremony took place, but Luca and Alej went um, as part of our team um, for LATOC, which was awarded the Pile d'Or last year. And they said, well, actually, it was... Um, it was good in the sense that it didn't hype up their ascent too much and say you are the winner and everyone else is is okay, but you guys are the winner. Um, it was more of a festival about getting people together and going climbing. So that sounds like a positive step. Uh, in principle, a event, an event that celebrates alpine climbing and brings people together is a fantastic idea. I guess... One thing I would really encourage people to do is to inform themselves and to keep things in context. My thoughts on the Pile d'Or, I've written about them um, and they're online, they're on my website or whatever. And so we can easily just say like, he thinks this about that and, and label someone, whereas it's important to read the full story, to get the full context. And what that means for our route is, well, uh, I guess um, I originally wrote that, you know, there's like a lot of phrases that go around, such as if you get frostbite on a on an alpine route, you kind of lose, really. I mean, that's you, it's not it's not a complete ascent, if you like, or it, you've you've not done it to a very good standard, perhaps, or to the, the best of your ability. Uh, it shows you've taken a risk, perhaps, um, or too great a risk. And so there's also this uh, idea that if you get rescued, you lose. And so I kind of said that initially, um, shortly after I was back from Pakistan, um, we got rescued. So I'm sort of holding my hand up and saying, well, let's keep this in context. context. And um, we had Ali and I had a fantastic route. We had a great partnership and I'm forever psyched and, and grateful for the route with him. And then it was an accident and we got rescued. Um, was it the right decision to get rescued? Yes. And was it the best um, ending? No, it was, it was an unfortunate ending. And I guess rescuing someone on a climb means that you um, – definitely have an asterisk or or something like that after the climb it's important to have that in context uh you could definitely say um that if someone dies on a climb then that's a whole different thing and a whole different level or scale away from getting rescued um in terms of the pile door i don't think it is necessary for our route to be part of the Pile d'Or or anything like that. Um, like I said in my in my writing, it's nice for people to acknowledge the years of effort and, and training and dedication and routes that have led up to uh, this m most recent route. Um, but I don't think it's necessary for it to be recognized in, in like, this is the best climb of the year. I think that would be a bit silly maybe I'm rambling a bit now, but basically um, I think our route is a bit of an asterisk. It's got a bit of an asterisk on it or, uh, you know, it's a great route, but we were rescued on the descent. Um, and I think that uh, the Pile d'Or, I'm just not really that bothered about it. <laughs> Thanks very much. But yeah. Yeah. I think, 
I think probably a lot of the people listening to this uh, can identify and probably really appreciate hearing you say that. Well, hopefully. And um, when I was hanging out in base camp with um, Luca and Alej, two Slovenians, last year in Pakistan, um, we were sharing a lot of jokes and I was telling them about um, the film called Ali G, which is uh, really immature and really silly, but it's amazing. <laughs> And but basically, there's a bit in that where Ali says, "Keep it real," and it kind of kind of sounds <laughs> funny. But you know, like there is obviously you can go off and rant and stuff like that. But again, I'm not really that bothered. But I think there's just a, a an emphasis nowadays on keeping it real, as in not hyping it up too much, just telling it how it is, just going out climbing with your friends. You don't have to right. um, shout about it and um you know it's fine to produce something out of a climb or if everyone's psyched about something that they've done but just to uh, keep a social media for example at a bit of an arm's length keep it at a distance um not to get too involved with it and also to just keep a firm grasp on reality you know uh we're just climbing up rocks and coming back down after all The photos from this climb are amazing, and we've posted a few at the Cutting Edge webpage. We've also shared a few of Tom's Instagram posts in which he discusses his thoughts about the climb. He'll be writing about Koyazam for the next AHA. Thanks to Hilleberg the Tentmaker for sponsoring this show. You can find tons of information about their legendary tents at hilleberg.com. I also want to remind listeners that the music for The Cutting Edge was created by Jason Tyler Burton. He's got a new album out, and you can listen to songs and find out about live shows at jasontylerburton.com. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald, wishing you happy climbs.